0: Welcome to the Compass Christian Church Weekly Sermon Podcast. For more information, visit us at compasslew.org. Well, good morning. It's good to be back. And we are back in Ephesians like we have been for the past seven weeks or so. And this morning we're going to be looking at Ephesians 2, 6 through 10. And I've titled this A Community of Grace. And hopefully we'll see a little more why I have titled that uh, this morning. So we've been working through Ephesians very slowly, like I said, I think this is our eighth week, Uh, and we've been taking the time to read Ephesians with a fresh perspective. So for those of you that are familiar with the book of Ephesians, uh, we've been challenging language, we've been challenging assumptions, we've been uh, doing the hard work of challenging those things. For those of you that are newer to the Bible and newer to Ephesians, well, it's all new to you anyway, so you've been been along for the ride anyway. Anyway. But in chapter one, we've seen that uh, the good news that we've been blessed in Christ, that we can experience an apocalypse, and we talked about how that's an encounter with God or with Christ, um, an encounter that brings us closer to God, a way where God can take that veil off of our eyes, we can see more of the truth. And we also saw at the end of chapter one that Jesus has been exalted over all the powers by his father, God. Last week, we were in the first five verses of chapter two, and we saw our terrible state that we began in, which was a state of being dead. And uh, we were dead, as it says, when God reached out to us with his grace. We did not deserve God's love and his mercy, and yet here we are, recipients of God's love and his mercy. So we'll be heading into uh, the last half of the first half, so the second quarter, I guess you could say, of chapter two as we've been sort of taking things slowly. And as we move through this passage, I again want to comment quickly that we're here to push ourselves and to better understand the Scriptures. Um, We all bring a perspective or a lens to the table when we read the Bible. We all do. And that's not a good thing or a bad thing. It's just what it is. It is what it is. We all have things that we've been taught, things that we've understood. And some of those are good, and some of those may not be the most accurate. And uh, what we want to do with the help of biblical scholars, with the help of textual experts, language experts, historians, whoever we can uh, rally to our cause, we want to try to read the Bible the best that we can for the way they would have understood it in the first century when Paul actually wrote this letter to the Ephesians. And so when we do this, Uh, some of our assumptions about certain words might be challenged because the way that they understood those words back then are different. And so with that in mind, I want to bring up our four themes back that we've been talking about as we've been working through Ephesians. And the first one is community-oriented versus individualistic. Uh, Every U in the letter is plural. So um, we've been reading them as y'all to make that clearer for us. And then the second one is new creation and new order of things in Jesus, in apocalypse. We've talked about that quite a bit. Um, The third and fourth one are about unity in Christ. So when we see unity, it's because God's given us unity in Christ, unity between heaven and earth, and that when there's division, it's because of the powers. And usually when we think about the powers in the context of division, we're thinking about the evil powers. But remember, powers can be good, powers can be bad, powers can be neutral, We're going to talk a little bit about that today as well. Uh, So we'll be focusing primarily on one and four today, I think. So what are our questions for today? Our questions for today are, what does grace mean? And I don't think that answer will surprise you too much. Hopefully, if you uh, have been um, walking with Christ for for a little bit, you'll understand what grace means. But the second question, the, the answer might surprise you. What does it mean to receive a gift from God? That answer might surprise you. So let's begin by reading this whole first half of chapter 2 of Ephesians, starting in verse 1. And y'all were dead in the trespasses and sins, in which y'all once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. and this is not y'all's own doing, it is the gift of God, not of works, not a result of works so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So last week, again, we saw that we were dead in the trespasses and sins, and we saw three powers that uh, were designed to keep us away from God. Those three powers being the course or the age of this world, uh, just different systems and things that have been set up in our world. We saw the prince of the power of the air or the devil, and we saw the desires of our flesh or the things that we just innately seek after that are not of God. And so all of these things keep us from God, and they keep people from coming to God in our day and time as well. So the question that we have to ask ourselves is, if there is a whole system of evil that's baked up by the world and by the devil and by all the things around us, how do you fight systemic evil? So that's what the context of this passage is all about. How do you fight systemic evil? So we're going to consider, we're going to wrap that idea up at the end. I want to come back to our section for today, which technically starts in verse 6, I know, but I want to read it starting in verse 4, and I think we'll see why here in a little bit. Verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace y'all have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Last week, I talked a little bit about uh, the abundance language that we see in Ephesians. And here we see it twice, very vividly. He's rich in mercy in verse 4. And then he wants to show us the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness to us in verse 7. So even despite our status as dead enemies of God, that's where we were before Christ came, God reached out to us through his grace. And I think that even though this is a common thought for those of us who have been Christian for a long time, uh, we cannot lose the significance and the power of our status before Christ and how God worked through Christ to redeem us. The power of God's grace, his mercy, his love, and his kindness toward us. So I want to take a little bit of time. I know I left us on a cliffhanger last week. I skipped over this by grace y'all have been saved clause in verse 5. Even though technically it was part of last week's, so I just skipped over it. I didn't have time for it. We do have time for it today. So let's talk about what grace means and then let's talk about what gift means. So Thayer's lexicon, which is a free lexicon you can find online using like the Blue Letter Bible app, um, it defines grace as goodwill, loving kindness, favor, preeminently of that kindness by which God bestows favor even upon the ill-deserving and grants to sinners the pardon of their offenses and bids them accept of eternal salvation through Christ. So I think many of us Probably have heard definitions like this. If you've been a Christian for a long time, you've probably heard that definition of grace. Now, Tim Mackey offers a a simpler definition in his class on Ephesians. He says grace, or the Greek word is charis, literally means gift and metaphorically the attitude or attribute of the one giving the gift. So you have someone giving a gift, and that gift could be called a charis, a grace, or you could refer it as the attitude of the person giving the gift. Now, one thing about grace that I think um, I know I had to question in thinking about this passage and thinking about grace in general, one thing that I did have to sort of reset my perspective on was in my upbringing, I was taught that Paul, who wrote the book of Ephesians, who wrote this letter to that church so many years ago, that Paul was a preacher of grace coming from a Jewish religion of works. And I know many of us have probably heard that idea before, that Paul preached grace and that Judaism was a religion of works. Um, But I want to point out that recent scholarship, especially by a man named John Barclay, who wrote a book called Paul and the Gift, is really pushing back against that idea that Judaism was a religion of works and that there was no grace at all involved in Judaism. So Barclay did some research on Second Temple Judaism, and that's a scholarly term that's just referring to the Judaism that existed at the time that Christ lived and that Paul was writing these epistles and that sort of thing. And he also Barclay also went through church history, and he identified six aspects of grace that, that people have used throughout time to describe different ways of looking at God's grace. There are six things that Barclay... Has pulled out. And I have them up on the slide here. The first three. The first one is superabundance. So the extravagance or the scale of the gift, superabundance. That's one aspect of God's grace. The second one is called singularity, which is the idea that the giver is always and only benevolent. Um, And then depending on your definition of singularity, something, you know, there's something about punishment in there. And so, you know, I think many of us in this room would even probably, we would read the definition of singularity and we'd have different perspectives on it. Um, So I'm not going to spend too much time on that one. The third one, priority, the gift is given before there is any initiative on the part of the recipient. So the person who gives the gift acts first, and then the person who receives the gift, they did nothing to receive it. The fourth one is incongruity. The gift is given regardless of the worth of the recipient. Okay, so I think we're seeing some things that we're seeing in Ephesians here. And then five is efficacy. The gift empowers the one to whom it is given. So a gift is given, and then because a person receives that gift, now there's something that they can do in their lives that was different than what they could do before. And then finally, number six is non-circularity, which is there is no expected return for the gift. And this last one, we're going to get into more detail on this last one here in a little bit, but when we usually think about gifts in modern times, we usually think of this last one. But what might sound surprising to all of you is, is that this last one is a modern Western idea. It comes in during the Reformation. And it really did not exist in the ancient world, and especially not even in the ancient uh, in the ancient Eastern world. It's a modern Western phenomenon. Now, almost all the Jewish sources that Barclay researched and went through and documented, um, they emphasize number one superabundance. Almost all of them, superabundance is at the top of the list. So, what that means is we have ancient Jewish sources talking about God's grace and talking about it in the context of it being extravagant and. Abundant, over the top. So not only is the ancient Jewish faith a religion of grace, it's a religion of superabundant grace. That's how many of the rabbis talked about it during this period of time. Now, as a scholarly point, number two, for example, the giver is always and only benevolent. In ancient Jewish circles, that was a relatively rare thing. A few rabbis believed that, but not every rabbi believed that. So the idea that we, that many of us were taught—I know I was taught—that Paul was a grace preacher and that he comes out of a religion of works—it doesn't pass the scholarly test. If you go back and you read actual Second Temple uh, Jewish sources, you'll get grace all over the place. They talked about it. Now, of course, different rabbis talked about it in different ways. Right? They—they they tend to disagree and argue and. To this day, you know, Jewish people and, and rabbis will disagree with one another and argue, and that's I think it's a beautiful thing about their faith, actually. Um, but they all believed in grace. That's my point. All the ancient Jewish rabbis believed in grace. They saw different perspectives. They used different language. They highlighted different aspects of those first five aspects that Barclay pointed out. But they all believed in grace. And I think that there's a good reason for that. If you want to put your finger here, we can turn to Exodus. If you have your Bible You can turn with me to Exodus. This is God's self-declaration to Moses about who he is. And I think this can help us understand why Judaism was a religion of grace. In Exodus 36, one of the most powerful passages here in Exodus, God says about himself, verse 6, and when we see again those those letters, L-O-R-D, capitalized, That means that the translator is translating the name of God, Yahweh. So sometimes I'll read it that way. The Lord, or Yahweh, this is verse 6, passed before him, Moses, and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So when God describes himself, how does he describe himself? Almost the first thing out of his mouth is that he's full of mercy and he's gracious. Those are his first two words that God uses to describe himself. So as a result, any religion based on a relationship with this God, with Yahweh, is going to be what? A religion of mercy and grace. That's just the way it is. And yes, we can acknowledge that ancient Judaism had a law that required obedience and that there were consequences if the people did not obey the law. But it was still a religion of grace. And some people would argue that Christianity has a new law, that there's a new covenant, a new law, and that we're supposed to obey that one as well. So anyway... But the point I'm trying to make here is we can look through the whole Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures, is a story of how God extended mercy and grace to his people time after time. Time after time, he showed them grace and mercy. So as Barclay continues the book, he works through church history. And of course, I'm, I'm sure you understand that various Christian theologians have different view on grace. <laughs> And if you want to get in more on that, I suggest you pick up Barclay's 700-page book, which I did not read <laughs> cover to cover. I, did not e- I just uh, watched some YouTube videos with some uh, interviews that he had and stuff like that and Tim Mackey's explanation of it. But it is worth reading, I think. I will at some point pick it up. But anyway, if you want to get into all the nitty-gritty about how church fathers viewed grace slightly differently than one another, Barclay's done all the work for you, so... But I think the point that we all think about is, who cares what Augustine thought about grace? Who cares what this rabbi or that rabbi in the first century thought about grace, right? We're reading the book of Ephesians. What does Ephesians have to say about grace? So let's read through the verses we just read through, but now thinking about these characteristics of grace. Verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, y'all have been saved. And raised us up with him and seed us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So I think we find superabundance here in spades, right? <laughs> He's rich in mercy, and he has to take all of the coming ages to show us all the kindness and the love that he has for us. So we clearly see superabundance here. Now, singularity, God as being only benevolent. Again, depending on your definition of that, you're going to see that here, I think. You see God as being rich in mercy, full of love, full of grace. Uh, God is good here. Priority, no initiative on our part. I talked about this last week. What can someone do when they're dead? Is there anything we could have done if we're being described as dead? No. So clearly we have priority here. There was no initiative on our part. There's nothing that we could do to reach up to God to earn our salvation or anything like that. So clearly we see grace is viewed as having priority here. And then what about incongruity? Are we uh, portrayed here as worthy of this gift? No, we were dead where? In our trespasses and sins. We weren't worthy recipients of God's grace. Neither were the the Old Testament Jews. Were they worthy recipients of God's grace? Did they deserve it? No. Several times God says, actually throughout the Old Testament, he says, it's because I made this covenant with Abraham that I'm doing this for you right now. (laughs) Like I made this deal a long time ago and you're just sort of getting in on the extended warranty. Okay? Like you're (laughs) co-signed by Abraham. So... Uh, I think we get to incongruity there. And now when we think about efficacy, the gift empowers us to do something It empowers us to change. I think we get there in verse 10 when it talks about the good works that God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So I think we can get either four or five, depending on your definition of singularity, we can get four or five of these aspects of grace here in just verses four through 10 of Ephesians chapter two. The one we clearly don't get, or the one we don't clearly get, is the non-circularity, the one that we tend to think about when we think about gift-giving. So I want to turn now to the idea of gift-giving, and we're going to read the next two verses as well. Uh, Ephesians 2, 8. For by grace, y'all have been saved through faith, and this is not y'all's own doing. So there's priority again. Not our own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. So when we think about the best gift, I want you to take a moment here. When I tell you I'm giving you the best gift or someone's giving you the best gift, what's the first thing that comes to mind? <laughs> that's a great answer for a parent, yeah. Sleep, yeah, that's a good one. But I was think, when I was thinking about this, what if your spouse just buys you something and, there, and there's no reason for it. It's like, it's not an anniversary present, it's not a birthday present, but your spouse just comes home and is like, hey, I know you were looking at this the other day in the store, I just bought it for you. Isn't that great? Isn't that a great gift? And in America, we often think like the best gift is one with no strings attached. I give you a gift, and I'm like, look, there's no strings attached here. That's the best gift, Right? we sometimes think that any return for that would cheapen the gift. It would, it would sully it. Like if I say, hey, Amanda, I bought you this deck of cards, but now you need to play with my kids for an hour with those de- that deck of cards. I know you would do it, Amanda. I know, you're so kind. But the point I'm trying to make here is I'm giving a gift, and it seems like I'm like coercing, essentially, right? Like I'm giving a gift, I'm expecting a return. But the, uh, the idea of unconditional gift giving, like I said, is a modern Western idea. And it's something that like uh, philosophers like Kant and Derrida talk about a lot in their books. Um, and this is not necessarily a biblical thing. It's not how the ancients viewed it. And I wanted to give a couple of examples of even modern Eastern ways of looking at gifts. Uh, Tim Mackey in the Bible uh, Project class on Ephesians talks about going on a mission trip to Papua New Guinea. And right before they land, their uh, director of the mission says, hey, by the way, don't accept any gifts from anyone when you land on the plane. He says, well, well, why wouldn't I accept a gift? Like, it's such a weird thing for a Westerner to think about, like, not accepting a gift. Um, and their, their, their uh, director said, well, you can accept a gift. That's fine. You just need to expect them to come the next door and knock on your door and being like, where's my gift? So the idea behind gift giving was, if I give you a gift, in modern Papua New Guinea, if I give you a gift, then I expect a gift in return. I've built this, this, this sort of thing. I'm, I'm expecting some sort of return for my gift. And, of course, being a a Westerner with more money and all of those things, they expect a bigger gift than the one that they gave you, right? (laughs) My brother, Zach, uh, told me a story about Egypt. I asked him, I sort of mentioned what I was talking about, and I asked him if he had any stories along these lines from his travels in the military. And he was in Egypt as part uh, of one of his tours in the army. And he said that in Egypt, when you go to a market, you walk up to a booth, what the, the first thing that's going to happen when you walk up to a booth is they're going to hand you a figurine and say, "Oh, you know, usually I sell these for like five bucks, but here, this is a gift. You know, you can have this. I, I whittled it this morning. It's like a little wooden elephant or wooden camel or something. I whittled, and you know, Zach's looking at it and it's like this wasn't whittled this morning. <laughs> like this was made in China, you know. <laughs> uh, but anyway, the whole idea was they give you this gift so that you'll either buy something more expensive, or They'll guilt you into paying for the gift later in the conversation. Like if the first effort doesn't fail, you know, if they can't get you to buy a $20 thing at their little booth, then they're going to be like, well, hey, I got you this gift. You need to give me some money for that gift. So there's, there's an expectation of return in the East, even in modern times. Now, we have to ask ourselves, in Paul's mind, we have to place this in the Bible now, in Paul's mind, did he believe that there was some sort of return that was needed for a gift? Let's turn to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. I think we can see it here in Ephesians as well. But I want to point out in another spot too. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 9... Paul is talking about his ministry, and he says, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and by that he means he's an apostle. He's been given a ministry and a function in the body of Christ. And his grace toward me was not in vain. What does Paul mean that that God's grace toward him was not in vain? He clarifies it. He says, On the contrary, I did what? I worked harder than any of them, any of the other apostles, though it was not I, it wasn't really Paul doing the work, but what? The grace of God that is in me, that was that was with me. So here, Paul experiences grace as a gift, a gift to him as a person, and with it, his ministry and all the things that come with that. But then what comes out of that, grace becomes like a power in his life, that compels him forward and helps him to do the reciprocal thing. And the reciprocal thing for Paul was to work, was to obey, was to minister, was to serve people in love. So in Paul's mind, grace being vain would have been if he didn't reciprocate the gift. So there was a response required. Let's go back to Ephesians. I think if we... If we understand verse 10 this way, we're, going to, we're not going to read verse 10 quite this second, but understanding that God has laid before us good works that we should walk in them, that's the response from this gift that God wants. Tim Mackey puts it this way. We tend to view uh, grace as unconditional. Grace is unconditional. Uh, unconditional means no expectation of return. But that's not how they understood grace back then. They understood grace as unconditioned. And there's a difference. Unconditioned means it's not given on the basis of worth. Well, yeah, we agree with that. We see that right here in Ephesians chapter 2. We see it wherever the Bible talks about grace. Basically, it says, hey, you weren't worthy of this. But just because we weren't worthy of it and just because we couldn't work for it doesn't mean that there isn't some natural response that God expects from us. Tim Mackey says it this way. He says, quote, the return that you give will always pale in comparison to the abundance. So God has this abundance of grace. He has this abundance of mercy. There's nothing we can ever do to really pay it back. But what we can do is do the little that we can. And the little that we can is we have our lives. And that's what we give in response to him. As Paul says in Corinthians elsewhere, you are bought with a price. Therefore, serve God. So, again, in the ancient world, another thing about gifts that's interesting is gifts were generally given to those who are deemed worthy. So, if someone gave a gift to an unworthy person, that would be considered foolishness. Well, now the gospel's been called that word before, hasn't it? Foolishness? Part of that foolishness is because God gave the gift to us when we were unworthy. There is an imbalance there. And the reason why it's considered foolishness is because gifts always demanded a response. But what's unique about gifts and why I think this understanding of gifts has really revolutionized something for me is is that gifts were used for a very specific purpose in the ancient world. Gifts were used to establish a relationship. And if we think about worthiness and unworthiness in this context, no one would want to establish a relationship with an unworthy person, right? You would want to establish a relationship only with worthy people. That's why it didn't make sense to establish a relationship with an unworthy person. So gifts being used to establish a relationship, to me, that's the key to understanding this. So I was thinking about a silly example. Uh, in our time, we think about this. Um, imagine a young man. He wants to go to the prom with a specific young lady. He shows up at the house. He's got a bouquet of flowers, right? He's bringing this gift. He's doing it because he's deemed this young lady worthy, right? Right? And he wants a, there's a specific response he's going for. He doesn't want the door slammed in his face, right? He doesn't want to hear the word no. He wants to hear, yes, I'll go with you to the prom, right? So now let's think about God in the context of something similar to that. Think about God extending his son to humanity as a gift when we were unworthy. There is a hope. There is a sincere hope that is expressed by God and giving his son to us. And that hope is that we would accept that gift and come into relationship with him. 1 Timothy 2.4 says that God wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. John 3.16 says that God sent his son out of love to save us. So God is reaching out with this bouquet of flowers, with the, the life of his son Jesus, he's at the door, and he's waiting for our response. And if we accept those flowers, we're in relationship with him. It starts that relationship. And so we can see clearly in the scriptures that God does expect a response from this gift of grace. He wants us to have faith. He wants us to have gratitude. He wants us to have a life that is transformed by that gift into a new way of living. That's what he's seeking by giving us this gift. Here's another way to think about this. Um, When we receive a gift, we think of this gift as ours, right? Now, we own the gift. We have this new property. And so yesterday, uh, we had a birthday party for Liam. And uh, Liam's uh, birthday was a couple weeks ago, but this was just the first Saturday that worked for us. And so uh, Liam got a bunch of presents, right? Right? So Liam gets a bunch of presents, and he immediately thinks, look, this Lego set is mine, and this Lego, he got a lot of Lego sets, this Lego set is mine, and this Lego set is mine, right? And Hannah can be tempted, my daughter who's four and a half can be tempted to get jealous about that. Hey, you know, I want to turn with this Lego set, or hey, I want to turn with this toy, or whatever the case might be, right? Well, what does Liam say to Hannah when Hannah goes after him like that? He says, no, that Lego set is what? It's, it's mine. It's mine. So think about the primary gift that God gave us, his son Jesus. Now, God extended this gift to us, we accept it, but now do you own Jesus? No. Jesus is your Lord. If anything, he owns you. It's a different thing than what we think about when we think about gift giving in the modern Western world. So clearly this idea of biblical gift-giving has escaped. I know it's escaped me for a number of years until I started thinking about it in this context. Let's look again at verses 8 and 9. Another point I want to make about this um, is that there's a communal nature to this. There's a communal nature to this. Um, For by grace, y'all have been saved through faith. It's not y'all's own doing. It's the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one can boast. So we tend to view this individualistically, and there is an element of truth to that. There's nothing that I could do personally to gain Christ. There's nothing you could do personally to gain Christ. There's nothing that I personally can boast about, nothing that you personally can boast about. Um, There is some truth there. I don't want to gloss over the fact that that is true. But I want to point out that that's not exactly, I don't think, what Paul's getting at here, because I think there's better scholarship on this. The language of boasting was a social construct in the ancient world. So in other words, you would boast about your status as a rich person in a group of rich people, or you'd boast about your status as a Jew in the context of Jews versus non-Jews, Gentiles. Uh, You would boast because you were a man and had certain legal rights that women didn't have, or you were free and you had certain rights that slaves didn't have. It was all social. It was understood as social. And so the people of Ephesus, in in the context here, they're not to boast in the things that would usually distinguish themselves from other people in a social setting. They weren't supposed to boast because they were a Jew and not a Gentile, or they were free and not a slave, or a man and not a woman, or rich instead of being poor. Those are not the things that they were to be boastful of. Because that doesn't make you more deserving of God's gift of grace. None of those things makes you more deserving. None of those things make you more special. None of these usual statuses of worth or lack of worth apply in the new creation that God is building. And so we see this also in Galatians chapter 3. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For, and this word you is plural, so I'm going to read it as y'all. Y'all are all, there's sort of a double emphasis on the all piece there. Y'all are all one in Christ Jesus. You're all one. You all have equal status. So our status in the church is not affected by our status in the world. Our status in the world does not change when you get a wealthy person to come to Christ. They don't automatically become an elder because they're wealthy. That's not how it works in the church. We are equally valued in Christ, no matter our past trespasses and sins, no matter our social status in the culture, and no matter our giftings and callings and offices in the church. None of us are valued more than anyone else. The playing field is level. So this is talking about boasting in status socially. Lynn Kohick, who's been our friend in helping us through Ephesians and her new international commentary on the New Testament, said it this way. The extensive social hierarchy of the Greco-Roman culture said to slaves that they had no self-worth. Freed slaves carried the cultural baggage of their former slavery with them as permanently as their physical scars. Yet Paul addressed Christ-following slaves in his epistle's audience, raising the question, what could not by works mean to them? I suggest Paul was not attacking their human pride, but offering them hope that their lack of ethnic identity, social status, worth, deeds of social benefit made no difference to God, end quote. So the whole idea of not by works here, it's about social constructs. It's about being able to boast because I'm a rich follower, I'm a rich man, Jew, follower of Christ, and now I'm better than all of you because I'm a rich man, Jew, follower of Christ. No, you're not. Let's finally read verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And again, I think we can view this individualistically. All I can do is control myself, all you can do is control yourself, right? And so we can think about the things that God prepares before us each and every day to love our neighbors as ourselves, to, to walk in love to those around us, to serve one another in love, to go out in the community and do things and bless people. I think that's great. I think we should not ignore that. But I want to point out that the workmanship here in verse 10 is not me individually. I am not God's workmanship. Uh, Paula is not God's workmanship. Uh, Dan's not God's workmanship, not individually. This is talking about the body of Christ. This is talking about new creation that God is assembling everyone together into this masterpiece. We collectively are this masterpiece. So then the question becomes, what do these good works mean then, if it's collectively? And that's where we're going to end today. Because we started this morning talking about a system of evil. How do you fight a system of evil? We'll get to that. So let's look through the four layers of interpretation. What does all this mean for our lives? We've looked at what the text meant to them, how they would have understood understood gifts and grace. How would they have applied it? Well, in the original context, they would have understood the amazingness of God's gift of grace to us. They would have seen uh, the five things that we talked about from Barclay. They would have seen that, though, as an extension of God's grace that he always gave the Israelites because they don't. They wouldn't have had that like Lutheran idea that Paul was a grace preacher and the works, you know, you know, Jewish, Judaism was not a religion of grace. They they saw Judaism. It was around them. They could they knew the rabbis that were writing in the period that Paul was. They all understood they were all still talking about grace. So they wouldn't have had that confusion about grace that we often have. As a result of that gift, they would have seen the need to build communities of faith that could effectively fight the powers, the systemic darkness around us specifically the three powers we talked about last week. So they would have built local churches that would have acted in subversive ways to show people a new way of living, what we've been calling kingdom living. So what does that mean to us? Well, I think we should pick up the same mantle that they put down. We should continue uh, to build our church and and support a larger Christian community that can fight systemic Fire with systemic water. The whole idea of the powers that we looked at last week is that it's multifaceted, that it's a whole system of darkness, layered economic things, laws, um, people in authority, uh, spiritual forces, you know, all these things systemically, they've built a, a system of evil. And so, how do you fight that? You build a system of good. That is what it is like to be, uh, I think, a thriving church, is to build these systems that can fight the powers. So, what, do that, what does a community look like that does that? It looks like a group of people who loves people of all races, who supports the poor and the disenfranchised, who meets the needs of the most vulnerable people in our communities. If someone is being attacked by the powers and we see this happening, what are we supposed to do? The Good Samaritan parable tells us, help them out. It's a, this is a cosmic way of looking at our lives. You see someone and you can blame them or you can help them. You can see that they're being attacked by the powers and then you can step in and you can put on your superhero cape and fight. You can get in there and do something about it. And throughout history, the Christian church has led the way in taking care of the needy and the left behind. Christians have built the most orphanages, have built the most hospitals, have built the most schools in the poorest parts of the world, everywhere. For, and this was from the first and second century on until now. That's the way it's been. Our movement, I mean, there's a lot of bad things that our movement has done, but there's been a lot of good things that our movement has done, too. And today, we too here at Compass and as part of the larger Christian community here in Louisville, we can be a community of grace. It means something when we come together to be a collective group of people that says, we see that there are these powers in the world, that they are negative and they're impacting people negatively, and we want to fight those powers by loving our community and by extending the same grace that we've received from God into the people around us. To the people around us so that's what it means to be a community of grace and that's where we have to go because we see these powers influencing the people around us and we have to have sympathy toward that and to be able to fight that systematically we have to build our own system and we do that by following the example of the early church just like they built a system a community of grace we too can build a community of grace so let's pray Father, we thank you for just the unbelievable aspects of your grace. How when we were dead and could not do anything to merit, deserve it, work for it, there's nothing we could do, there's nothing that we can boast in God, that you still reached out with your grace and your mercy and your love and kindness to show us the way through your Son. We thank you for the fact that you have elevated your son over the powers, that he is seated at your right hand, that he is above all of them, and that by acting in his name and by utilizing the power of the spirit that you've given us, that we can dismantle the powers in our lives first and then in the lives that we come in contact with around us, Father. We can be agents building a community of grace for your glory. So, Father, we ask for your help with that today and every day. We ask that you would help us to see how we can get involved with organizations that are doing that around the city and around the world. So, Father, we, we are hopeful this morning. We're so thankful for this amazing future that you've, you've laid out in your scriptures. And before that kingdom comes, Father, we want to Bring as much of it, as many tastes of it as we can to this community around us. So we thank you for your help in doing that. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to the Compass Christian Church Weekly Sermon Podcast. For more information on how we are striving to follow Jesus together here in Louisville, Kentucky, check out our website, compasslou.org, where you can subscribe to our newsletter and view additional resources.